0: Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Snowball, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan, in January 2017. And our first story, winter driving across state lines in a rental car, is a bit more challenging than Karen Killian expected.
1: So it was uh, in December of my senior year in college, and I decided that I deserved to have an adventure. It had been a pretty shitty couple years. My parents had gotten a divorce that was really ugly, there had been a few bankruptcies involved, my dad had tried to commit suicide, and I had stayed in school only because school was the one thing that gave order to my life. I didn't really like the expensive private Catholic school that I had gone to because I was a good Catholic girl. And um, I couldn't really afford to be there, but I was working two jobs, waiting tables six nights a week, and working as a medical secretary at eight o'clock in the morning, which let me tell you, if you stay up in the bars until four o'clock, and then you go to work at eight o'clock, you don't really stay awake at work at eight o'clock in the morning very well, but I did it. Um, So anyways, I was working my butt off at school, and I was tired and I was burned out. And, but every day in class, I heard all my rich classmates talking about these fabulous trips they were going to go on over Christmas break, and I got it into my head that I deserved to go on a trip, too. And I had no money. I really had no right to take a trip, but I called up my credit card company, and they doubled my credit overnight. <laughs> so I thought, hey, why not? You know, it's, I can take a trip. And I had turned 21 the month before, which meant I could do two things legally that I hadn't been able to do legally before. One of which I had been doing for a very long time, so that didn't really matter. But the other was I could rent a car. And I had never owned a car of my own. I hadn't really driven at all since I had moved to Chicago at 18, but I decided that a cross-country road trip was the exact thing I needed to refresh my soul. So I I mapped out a trip from Chicago where I was living to the East Coast. My brother was in DC and my favorite cousin was in New York City and I had friends in Philly and one of my best friends was in Buffalo and another friend in Cleveland. So I decided I would just take this nice little loop and one of my roommates decided that she would come with me for the first leg of the trip. So I called up Enterprise Rent-A-Car and I got this really pretty gold Nissan Altima and I got in the car and we left Chicago before dawn and drove over Gary and made great time on the turnpike. And this was the mid-90s. So, of course, we were listening to Ani DeFranco full blast over the loudspeaker the whole time and smoking our camel lights and blowing the smoke out the window um, and singing horribly. But it was perfect, right? The open road was everything I wanted it to be. I was like, at 80 miles an hour, all you see is possibility, everything in front of you. And I could finally just relax and begin for the first time in years to imagine new things and that, you know, the whole world was wide open, right? Or how was the Tom Petty Goa song go? The future was wide open. Um, and I was, I was ready to hit the road. So I had a good weekend in D.C., dropped my friend off at the airport, and I was making my way to Philly, which if you look it up on an app, that's two hours. But I decided I needed to go to Ocean City and Rehoboth and, you know, I'd make a big, nice little loop around and just really, I'd never seen the Atlantic Ocean before. I put my feet in the, in the water and ate a bag of saltwater taffy. And I just love the freedom. Nobody knew where I was. Nobody knew what was going on. And by the time I got to Philly, it was dark and it was snowing and I hit rush hour traffic, just slam. So I'm on this interstate alone. And again, this is the mid nineties. I have no cell phone. I have no navigation device other than a crumpled up piece of paper in my hand with a list of exits and turns written on it that i'm trying to read by the light of the traffic in the car and i'm counting down the exits and i'm like okay they're all you know they're all on the right as exits usually are so i get over to the right lane six lanes of traffic and i'm over there and i'm waiting and my exit's on the left of course and so i do what you do i get off at the next exit and i try to find my way to to back to the interstate so that I can get back on. But it's dark, and it's snowing, and I come to a stop sign, and I realize that I am on a street of dark, deserted, boarded-up buildings. And I start to panic. And so I start driving in circles like crazy, um, trying to find my way back to the interstate. I have no idea where I'm going, and I'm too scared to get out of the car to ask anybody, and I blow a stop sign. And I blow a stop sign, and I... Crunch, hit another car. Now, there are a few things you're supposed to do in this situation, right? The right thing is to get out of the car, admit your fault, and just, you know, exchange information, do all the things you're supposed to do. Or you could do what I did, which is just keep driving. (laughs) In my rental car. Around some, you know, I, I don't know Philadelphia enough to have any idea where I was, but some neighborhood that didn't really feel safe to me as a white girl from northern Minnesota and who was 21 years old and alone in a golden Nissan Altima. So I got back on the interstate and I drove for about 25 miles until I hit a truck stop and then I got, a, got called my girlfriend and got directions to her house and went inside and poured about a half a bottle of wine in a glass and drank it and I didn't even tell her. I went to bed and um, the next day, she worked weekdays, so the next day, my plan was to take a train to New York and hang out with my cousin in New York. He was a student at FIT, so he had his weekdays rather full to hang out and dance at the limelight with me all night long, and then you know, I'd go back to Philly on the weekend to see my friend. But over the course of the time that I was there, I eventually told my cousin the story that I had gotten in a little bit of a car accident. But it was very easy to tell that story the other way around somebody hit me and drove away. And over the course of my three days in New York, the story got more and more elaborate. So by the time I got back to Philly, my girlfriend had noticed that this car I had parked in the parking lot at her um, apartment building was a little smashed up. She said, Karen, you know, did somebody hit it? I was like, oh, I didn't want to tell you, but somebody hit me when I was coming in and I got lost and I was too embarrassed to explain it to you and, you know, so... I, I just don't know what to do. And she's like, well, we'll go to the police station. And by this time, my story is getting more and more elaborate. So I go to the police station, and I explain the story to four cops in a row. And every time the story gets a little bit more, you know, I fill in the details, what color the other car was, uh, you know, where I think I was, but that I was really lost, but we're trying to figure out maybe what the intersections might have been. And, of course, this wasn't really a great neighborhood where I thought I was, so they believed me because I was me and not somebody else, which of course isn't cool, but that's the way it was. And eventually I got this police report, and I filed it away, and I moved on. And I drove to Buffalo, and if you drive to Buffalo in December, you're doomed to arrive in a snowstorm, right? So I went to visit my best friend in Buffalo. And let's just say that she was living in a house with her 17-year-old brother, her mother, her 20-year-old sister. And they all had four cars, and then I show up with this other car. And over the course of the six days I was in Buffalo, there were only ever two cars that made it back to the house every night because everything else got left. So my nice little golden Nissan Altima got a little bit more beat up getting stuck on the road, but we just decided to attribute that to the hit and run in Philly too, right? (laughs) So eventually I drive back to Chicago, and I have to call up, you know, we have to go into the, the rental car company, and then call up their insurance and have six more conversations where I have to tell this story over and over again. And I can't get out of it now. Um, And I only had to pay my $200 deductible and move on with my life. And I didn't tell anybody this story until about two days ago when I finally told my husband that I had done this. (laughs) Because remember, I was a good Catholic girl, and I didn't do anything wrong. But I will tell you that the fact that I got away with that gave me this little seed of power just hung right here. And life was really shitty, and I was really broke, and I had no idea what I was going to do, but it kind of felt like I was a little bit more capable and a little bit more able to fend for myself because I'd gotten myself out of that situation, even though I had to lie through my teeth to do it. Thanks.
0: Next, Taking a call after initially not wanting to answer the phone leads Jen Loop to a cherished but short-lived friendship. I remember
2: the first phone call I ever had with Lee. At this point in my life, I had left a career I loved. I used to work at the zoo in town, Clinch Park Zoo. They closed, it was a career I knew I would have loved for the rest of my life, but it was taken away from me. So I started on this journey of being self-employed and I was going to be a pet sitter. Animals were always a passion and I'm not well suited necessarily for being my own boss. But this was something I was gonna want to do and I put a lot of effort into getting over the issues I had um, with communicating with people. So this was around 2008 And answering phone calls was a concern of mine. I would often put them off. I would wait for messages. Just picking up that phone and talking to someone I couldn't see was a big deal. So I remember when Lee first called, I was driving up Center Road along a curve where you often drop a phone call. So I remember talking to her, getting some details about her and her dog, and then having to call her back, which was even worse. But she seemed very nice. Um, She was someone that lived out of town a lot of the year and came back and lived in Building 50, or the Commons, for the summer. Now, I went and met her and her dog, Quantum. Quantum was a chow mix, big, black, fluffy dog. Um, She was wonderful. She was an interesting personality, and I could tell that Lee loved this dog. Now, Lee said on that first walk, as we were walking through the woman's walk at Grand Traverse Commons, which is a place that I came to love. There are these all these grown-in big pine trees. At some point I remember seeing an albino duck through the streams. There are deer. I saw I captured for 5 minutes a blandings turtle, which is a very unique species around here. And this was a place that was special to her. She was sharing this with me and telling me that she received quantum from her sister who had recently died. Her sister had Six dogs. This dog grew up on a farm. Lee really hadn't had dogs in her adult life, but she took on this dog because this was her sister's and this was important. So over the course of six years, I got to know Lee and I got to know Quantum. And every summer, she would come back from Maryland and I'd get a phone call. And she would take walks with Quantum. She was very regimented. They had a wonderful life together. But she would need extra help because she was very active in the community. She was very active in Interlaken. Um, She would always make a point to see most of the films at the film festival. She would have a schedule. She would call me in when she just needed extra walks for her dog. There were so many little things about her relationship with Quantum that stick with me. For example, I remember the first time she was teaching me how she fed her or what she fed her. She had this raw diet. It was one of the first times I saw these frozen raw diets you can get for very special dogs. At some point, Quantum was having seizures, so she needed a medication before she had her regular meal. And Lee would call this her (laughs) amuse-bouche. And I remember thinking this was so wonderful, and then going home and looking up what that meant. (laughs) And and for dessert, once a day, Quantum would always have a, a, um, a dog ice cream cup, which are often like those ice cream cups that you would have with the wooden spoon when you were in elementary school. But she would hold it for Quantum because it was hard for quantum to get the little bits at the end. So you would sit and hold this. Now, I have known a lot of people with a lot of dogs. And one thing I really admired about Lee is she had a devoted space for this dog, but she didn't treat this dog like a little human. This was an animal she understood, and she had a mutual... They both had mutual respect for each other. Now, in 2012, I was helping Lee more with her dog because she had fallen and hurt, hurt her leg. The doctors were sure it was going to heal, but they weren't really giving her a timeline. She kept checking in, and she was she was getting a little more... She was always witty and very um, articulate, and I, I felt like for um, in a span of a few days, she was getting a little more confused, so... She um, one day had a walker, and I was walking quantum more. One afternoon, I came in, and she couldn't stand up. She could not get herself up to actually hold on to the walker. And I helped her. I helped her stand. It took about five minutes because I'm not a nurse. Lee was not a large person, but neither am I. And so that was way outside my skill set, but I still helped her up. And then later that night, I dropped quantum off, and she was already in bed, and she called me in to say that she couldn't roll over and she needed to be more comfortable. So again, this was not something I was going to leave her to do alone. And I went in and I remember as I helped her, she sighed and said almost as if I were not there, now I can rest. So the next day or that night, I I contacted a few other clients I had in this building. She had plenty of friends, but I was the one that was seeing her the most. And I explained to them that I thought things were not right with her, and I wasn't sure what was going on. They talked to her, she put off going in, um, in a very lee fashion, until she like, decided it was her time. And she went into Munson, and they discovered that she had cancer everywhere. She ended up in Munson Hospice House, and um, from what I know, never really regained coherency. Now. Through this time, I was working with her trust, because she was the last of her family, to take care of Quantum. And I stayed on for quite a few weeks. And Lee passed away. I do think she got to see Quantum once or twice, but she wasn't quite aware of what state she was in. And, And she never really planned for Quantum's life after her, because she was 60 years old. She had no idea this was coming or that she would ever go before this dog. So I I remember the details of her house as I was in her personal space. Dog sitting or pet sitting can often bring you into people's private spaces, but it's so remarkable to think of the last things that people did when they were in their, their private home. And quantum, I still regret to this day, I could not take because of the dogs that I had. Um, she did go somewhere, but I have to say within a few weeks of her finding a new home, she was gone too. And they've both settled in my soul a little bit, um, for the relationship that they had with each other and for this idea that you never know what part of a life you're going to be able to witness. I answered a phone call when I didn't want to answer a phone call and I was there to see an important part of an important person's life. I think, I like to think, no matter what sort of pantheon you believe in, that they're walking somewhere together. But in the end, what we have left here are stories. The stories that we've told others um, about our lives and the stories that we let other people witness.
0: Next, a deer versus wolf situation happening right in front of Brad Leistra's Wilderness Group for Troubled Teens provides an excellent real-time metaphor.
3: Okay, when, when you're a wilderness guide and you're in your early, mid-20s, you can find work in the summertime pretty easily because that's when everybody wants to camp. But finding work in the off-season, which the real, real off-season would be like the middle of winter, can be kind of tough. And if you wanted to lead trips year-round, one thing that was happening in the early 2000s uh, was there were a lot of wilderness therapy programs for at-risk youth that were leading trips in January and February and March, during those times when nobody else wanted to be outside. So if you're a lucky guide, you might get to go to Australia or New Zealand or Chile or somewhere in the other hemisphere during those times of year. Um, I was not necessarily that lucky, so I actually um, became a wilderness guide in the mountains of Idaho in the Bennett Hills, which is kind of in the high Rocky Mountain Desert, kind of in the Sun Valley area, leading survival trips for troubled teens who had been kind of sent by their parents to learn survival skills uh, in January outside in Idaho. <laughs> and, we would teach them you know, how to you know, make, they're basically, they're, they're against their will. Uh, we would outfit them with a tarp, a sleeping bag a wool blanket, a bag of rice and lentils, and we would teach them how to make fire with their hands, build traps to catch small game, and camp in the snow without, without a tent, without a backpack, with basically a tarp and and some parachute cord. And it's the year 2001, it's January, and this is where I find myself on day 10 of a month long trip with seven students and myself and another guide. And we've been out there for 10 days and it's been snowing. We have about six inches of fresh, kind of Rocky Mountain, Idaho powder on the ground. And we're going to our campsite uh, and it's, then it's the sun's starting to go down. It's like 5 or 6 o'clock at night. And we're going to a campsite at the mouth of the Rattlesnake Canyon in the Bennett Hills, and, which is a canyon that has a lot of rattlesnakes in the summer, but not in January. And we're sitting around the fire one night on day 10. And we're all kind of quietly cooking our rice and lentils for dinner. And we're all sitting right next to each other. So there's nine of us. And I hear a snap of a twig just in the near distance. And I look over, and I take my headlamp off, and I shine my light, and there's a deer standing there, which is about, honestly, it's a mule deer, which is the common deer out in Idaho. And it's about 20 feet away, which is just very strange. Those deers are really skittish of people. You don't see mule deer that close. So I actually point out, like, guys, there's like a deer like, standing practically in our camp. And we all kind of take notice. And then we hear the largest growl any of us have ever heard. And I kind of flash my headlamp, kind of 50 feet, kind of across this little gully. And on a rock rock outcropping, we have a wolf. And about five seconds after that wolf growls, the deer goes hopping away. And I track this wolf chasing the deer across his creek bed in this kind of sagebrush, Rocky Mountain High Desert. I turn to the kids and I'm like, did you guys just see this? Like we have a wolf hunting a deer right in our camp. And everybody was like, wow, like that's amazing. Um, They had kind of gone out of sight at this point. So we kind of, after being really excited, we go back to eating. About five minutes later, we hear a noise coming at us again, which sounds like kind of hoofs in the ground. And we turn and look and we now have the deer coming right back through our camp about 15 feet away. And now the wolf is literally running about two or three inches behind its hind legs, just right on it. And they go, they kind of, we watched them for about a couple hundred feet and they go over a little hill kind of in the creek bed and are out of sight again. And once again, we're like, oh my God, we have just had like an incredibly close encounter with wildlife. And we're all excited. Even the kids are excited. Even the kids kind of had no like, wow, that seems like that's incredibly rare to see, like maybe once in a lifetime experience. So we go to bed that night. We sleep in our tarps, by the fire, um, in our sleeping bags. And the whole time, I'm sleeping, I don't even get that much sleep. I'm like, you know, we've got six inches of snow on the ground. When I get up in the morning, I'm going to maybe try and see if I can find the deer or find the wolves. And I wake up that morning, and we're packing up to get ready to go on our hike the next day, and I turn to my co-guide. We always had two instructors for these trips. I turn to Tim, and I'm like, Tim, like, I know... Well, there's, there's kind of a rule when you're working with at-risk youth is like both instructors have to be there at all times. And you have to have two sets of eyes on the entire camp because these kids are kind of known to have some extreme behavior. I mean, you can only imagine what would cause these kids to get sent to Idaho <laughs> in January by their families, right? Like, you can just fill in the blank. Like, they're gonna test you, they're gonna manipulate you, they're gonna put everybody in difficult situations. This was the only time in my life that I ever left the group to one instructor, I, bas- I basically said, "Tim, give me fifteen minutes i 'm going to see if I can find the deer and he, and he 's like, "All right, what happened is so amazing. Go for it. Be back as quick as you can. So I set off on foot, I go and find the tracks which were right started right in our camp, and I start running, I'm going as fast as I can because I only know I have like 10 or 15 minutes before I need to be back. And so I'm running along the tracks up the mouth of Rattlesnake Canyon and about one or 200 feet into it, I see some blood. And I see more tracks and more blood and more tracks and more blood. And about an eighth of a mile into it, I come across the deer. The deer is in a creek bed and there's not much left of it. Um, there's a head, there's four paws, but the rest of the deer has been consumed. And in the snow around the deer, there's hundreds of paw prints. And I'm like, okay, we saw one wolf, but we have a pack. And I'm still in a hurry. And I go, I start running and follow the paw prints even further. And I'm going into Rattlesnake Canyon now, and I look up, and there's seven or eight wolves climbing the hills out of Rattlesnake Canyon. There's a couple baby wolves, and they turn, and they look at me, and I just kind of look at them, and they kind of climb out of the canyon. I run back to the group, and I go to Tim, I'm like, Tim, I found the deer, and I found a pack of wolves. The pack of wolves is gone now. They've gone deep into the canyon and we're not even hiking that way today. But we've gotta use this. We've gotta somehow like, everything we did with these kids was deliberate. It was complete, it was planned and on purpose. And we're like, how are we gonna use this and turn turn it into something for them? So we come up with a plan. We blindfold the kids and we have them do a trust walk where they all grab each other's shoulders and they walk, all seven of them walk, we guide them to the creek bed and we have them stand in front of the deer and then we pull off their blindfolds. And we're like, this is the deer from last night. There is, look around you, what do you see? And they're like, there's like hundreds of paw prints and we're like, there's a pack of wolves. It wasn't just the one wolf, it's a pack of wolves. They consume the deer, here it is, and the wolves have gone up into Rattlesnake Canyon. And we sit them down. And we're like, look, you guys have all been sent here. Your family, your closest family is most likely like 2,000 miles away and you guys have all done something, and it's not necessarily all your fault, although some of you, it definitely is probably your fault for why you're here. <laughs> but there are things going on that is breaking apart. What, there's, there's things that are breaking apart your family as we speak that are happening. And you can, you can go it alone, in this world, right? And people make it who go alone, and it happens all the time. But you can also be a family, and you can also be a pack. And I'm almost certain, after what we saw last night, that that pack and that family is going to win almost all of the time. And there are people who make it, the rugged individuals who can make it in this world, but they are going to be at a great disadvantage. And we literally turned to the kids and we said, hey, you guys are the deer. We're not saying you're the dead deer, but (laughs) this is the predicament that you found yourself in, sent here to the desert. So here's what we're going to do. You guys need to run. Because if you're going to make it, you're gonna to need to run fast, and you're gonna to need to run faster than that deer. So we have four miles to get to our next campsite, and you're gonna run the whole way, and we're gonna follow you, and when we get there, we'll keep camping. And they kind of looked at us because we didn't run these kids ever. It wasn't, we weren't a boot camp, it wasn't what we did, but, and they, and they were like, well, what are you talking about? And kind of like football coaches, or basketball coaches, or any coach, We made them run for four miles to the next camp. And, you know, the thing about wilderness is, you know, you can teach people how to make fire with their bare hands and you can teach people how to camp and survival skills and how to cook for themselves. But the thing about wilderness is you never know what is gonna happen when you're in that environment. And sometimes that thing that happens is like the actual greatest lesson about survival of all was staring them right in the face the whole time, was that, hey, like, your family gives you a much greater shot to survive. Thank you.
0: In the last story of the evening, Nancy Baker quickly finds out just how nosy neighbors can be when you're building a new house.
4: So, it started with a deep, clear, sharp-edged bootprint in the snow. It was 2009, and I was um, building a house in a quaint little nearby village in northern Michigan. I had driven up from Chicago to view the progress and have meetings and things like that, so I left Chicago the night before. And I followed the blue curve of Lake Michigan, past the gridlock, past the skeletal remains of the steel mills in Gary, and then swung around north until I hit the deep pines. And um, I arrived sometime after midnight, opened the car door, and even in the frigid midwinter air, I took a deep breath and I could smell that wonderful smell that is a mix of water and trees, which my husband calls the good Michigan smell. So the next morning I got to the job site extra early to meet with the builder. And he's a very religious man. He's a Mennonite. Um, And I always tried to hit this sweet meeting time spot that was somewhere between uh, his peaceful morning prayers that he had with the whole crew where they asked God for guidance and safety throughout their workday, and then the time where they fired up all the really noisy Power tools. So I always tried to get somewhere in the middle of that because I didn't really want to interrupt either of those things. Um, So I pulled into the empty driveway around 7 o'clock in the morning and a two-inch blanket of snow had camouflaged what would have otherwise been a messy work site. There were no shingles, no no, uh, you know, sprays of sawdust, no spare nails laying around. It was just this perfect white scene. And then I noticed the boot print. So this trespasser's journey was really well narrated by the snowfall. He had come up our driveway, he had stopped and turned to look at the road. Was he visible? He had then turned around and continued on up towards the house. His prints disappeared somewhere around the threshold of the doorway and then I found them again at the rear part of the porch where they went off through the yard and across our neighbors to the north and sort of drift away. So I figured he must have come either late in the night or very, very early that morning. So when the crew arrived, I mentioned the prince to Luke, the boss, and he smiled and he goes, yes, we get visitors here about three times a week. I'm so sorry, Um, I hope you don't mind, but we finally told people that we just couldn't give any more tours of the house. Um, without your permission. It was really getting in the way of our progressing on the job. Now, Luke is someone who sees the best in all people, and he could never bring himself to be mean to anyone, not even to a nosy stranger. Um, His company is even called Golden Rule Construction, so he's always trying to treat everyone well. But, you know, I should have expected this strange phenomenon, this curiosity about other people's intimate spaces. Because when I was young, I remember my parents, every night after dinner, would take what they called their evening constitutional. And they would walk the paths around the blocks around our house and sort of casually peer in at our neighbors with undrawn curtains and the lights still warmly backlighting their meals and things. And then they would always return home with like commentary on these very private domestic scenes. Like, <laughs> oh, I see Jan got new wallpaper, or, uh, you know, the Smiths moved that lamp to the other end of their couch. And I guess in 1968, this is what you did before HGTV. Uh, So back at the job site, uh, locked doors and latched windows started to be installed, but the visits still continued. One Sunday night when Luke was actually coming back from a Mennonite meeting in Charlevoix back to Traverse City, his wife asked to do sort of a drive-by of our property to see the progress. She was really, you know, proud and supportive and wanted to see how far along it had come. And Luke told me this story. He said, you know, the sun was setting over the bay and it was a really bright golden sunset. So your whole house was sort of backlit and seemed to be, you know, on fire with this beautiful... Um, sunset that was happening. He said, I pulled my truck parallel out in front, and just as I snapped off the ignition, my son shouted, Dad, there's someone in the house. Sure enough, he looked up, and in the upward upstairs bedroom, looking down at them, was the perfect silhouette of a man who was completely backlit by this golden sunshine. He said, I quickly got out of the truck my son and I ran up to the front door, fumbled with the key, just as we heard the back door slam and we heard footsteps heading off out. He said, you know, that guy must have tried every single entry point in the house until he found an unlocked back porch and then a slider inside. He really worked at it to figure out how to get in. And he shook his head and he goes, I'm really sorry. That was really our fault. Um, we'll be more careful. He said, And you know, we left all of our power tools and equipment in there. It could have been a really terrible loss for us. He goes, But I don't think they wanted to really steal anything. I think they just wanted to look around. And I said, I think it's just seriously creepy, you <laughs> know? And so by midsummer, the house was almost done. Appliances were delivered, the floors were varnished. So Luke was vigilant in making sure that um, everything was always locked up. But the conflict of, hey, new stuff to see, but no way to get in and see it, seemed to spark this new spate of encounters that were usually ambushes of me as I was going about my business like coming out of the post office or the grocery store. And our house provoked a particular kind of conversation that I called the, I like it, but. And so they would go like this, well, wow, I think your house is really interesting, but my sister-in-law hates it. <laughs> or I walked down your road the other night, you've done a nice job, but my friend says your house looks like a Walgreens. So they couldn't just stop with the good news. They had to then, you know, give the other part. And so what I figured was that our town of about 2,000 residents had about 4,000 opinions when it came to building design. But the most memorable visit happened uh, the week after we moved in. We had had a housewarming, and about 50 friends were invited, new neighbors, things like that, and um, we asked them over for drinks, and about 135 showed up. Um, A clever friend of mine um, refers to that as a house swarming. And the week after the party, so clearly people live there, and we're putting just a couple finishing touches on the exterior, and a few landscapers were outside installing some last minute bushes and trees. It was a really hot September day, one of those really crazy, like 95 degree first week in September days. And I said to the landscapers, It's awfully hot. Are you sure you need to do this today? Do you have plenty of water? Yes, yes, Mrs. Baker, thank you. We've got lots of water. I said, Well, if you need to come in the house to cool off or get more water, use the bathroom, don't even hesitate. I think it's just really, really hot and humid out. And they're like, Well, we'll be fine. So I went inside. I had just gone for a long walk up the road, and I was all hot. So I was like, I'm going to take a quick shower. I'm going to take a load of towels out of the laundry. So I'm in my robe, folding towels in my bedroom, and I hear the front door swing open. I go over to the foyer, and in walks about a 6-foot-2, 60-year-old man, and he's just looking around. And I noticed he didn't have a Pine Hill t-shirt on, so I thought, well, I'm not really sure who this person is. And I'm standing there in my robe, and I said, can I help you? And he said, no, no, that's okay. I live in the condos down the road, and I saw this place being built, and I just wanted to see how it turned out. Is this Slate? (laughs) I just stared at him for a moment. And I said, "Um, our house is done. We live here now. I'm in a robe. You should go. And with defiance, he said, well, you, you made me feel kind of stupid. I mean, you know. And is this late? With this, I sort of carefully slid past him, walked over, swung the door open the rest of the way, and said, leave now. The landscapers who are outside must have heard, because they sort of rushed over with like all kinds of gardening implements <laughs> as weapons. They didn't look that fierce. The guy looked at them and looked at me and goes, all right, all right, all right, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And he was really annoyed. I felt really sad, like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, but he, he's like, I, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And I watched as he strode down my driveway and got into an idling Cadillac at the foot of the driveway where his either less curious or better-mannered wife was waiting for him, and she sort of nervously waved as they pulled out of the driveway. So things calmed down after that, and the only other visit that I received was of the criminal nature, but it wasn't really that terrible or serious. I was up for a weekend with some friends. One of them had left something in the car. She went out to retrieve it, and she didn't remember to lock my car when she came back. The next morning, I went out for the obligatory uh, donut run, and I came out to find all four doors of my car ajar. I looked in, clearly someone had rifled through it, you know, the, the things were open and kinda messed up. And, but the only thing that was missing was a bag of quarters that I used for the Indiana Toll Road back before there was I-Pass. So I came in, and I didn't think anything of it. And one of my friends was like, no, you should report this. And so I called the police, and I said, no big deal. I think 7 dollars quarters." And they're like, no, no, no. Somebody systematically went up the road last night. Someone lost an iPhone. Someone lost a set of golf clubs. Like, I'm, We're coming out, and we're going to take a police report. So a very polite and professional officer was dispatched very quickly. And he came in, and he took down all the simple facts. And then he started to give me a lecture. And he said, You know, you need to be careful. Just because this is a small town doesn't mean things don't happen. We've got drunks and juvenile delinquents and people passing through with bad intentions, and you need to lock your doors all the time. He said, Heck, if I went to the village market, I would be locking my doors when I left you know, you just can't be too careful, the town club closes at two o'clock and those people come right out onto the beach to continue partying and you're just setting yourself up for some terrible thing if you don't, and I was like, and he said, especially with all those doors in the back and that screen in back porch, you really need to be careful. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I went, hmm. We had never left my front foyer the whole time we were talking. <laughs> And I said, "Um, so you know about the backsliders and the porch? And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. Unfazed, he snapped his little book shut, and he clicked off his pen. He goes, "Uh, me and the missus, we live in this area. We take walks in the evening all the time. Heck, I've probably been in this place 12 times. (laughs) Have a good day. So call them what you want potential neighbors, voyeurs, home invaders, interlopers, peeping toms, police officers. (laughs) I'm going to take the advice of my true-hearted builder, Luke, who sees the best in all people, and I will choose to simply forget those who trespassed against me. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in February, where our theme is Love Craptually. Thanks for listening.